I think they see it as a superpower fight. I, and I think there's a, I think there's a little bit of naivete, particularly among the European business community. I, I, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but my sense is that probably the consensus view is we can straddle these two spheres and we're going to be we're going to be able to manage both and we're not going to pick sides. That was David Simon, who together with Mike Walsh, both from Foley and Lardner, joined me for part two of a two-part exploration of the disruption to the global supply chain. If you haven't listened to part one, go ahead and check that out as well. In this episode, we take a deep dive into the upcoming confrontation with China over Taiwan and what that will mean for the world's supply chain. I know you'll enjoy this episode. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. I wanted to now turn to China. I was really interested in your comment, David, that this is just a dress rehearsal. The first time I went to China was in 2001, and it was clear to me that the takeover of Hong Kong even then was just a dress rehearsal for Taiwan. And the Chinese didn't care how long it took them to integrate Hong Kong into the greater body of the Chinese politic. They would wait 50 years, 100 years, it turned out to be 10 years. But And so politically, I think they've shown what they're going to do. But we now have to be prepared for this, certainly from a political standpoint, but our clients do from a business standpoint. And that's going to be a very different, I think, conversation given the integrated nature of where U.S. business is with both China and Taiwan. What you guys had in your paper, which we're going to link to in the show notes, so I thought was two prescient ideas that I'd like to explore before we get directly to China. And that's number one, the West's miscalculation on bringing China into the World Trade Organization. And two, China's Belt and Road Initiative, where they basically gave away infrastructure to what I used to call developing countries. And now China holds the debt on all those. Sometimes those infrastructure projects worked, sometimes they didn't. But China has two tools they didn't have 25 years ago, which is World Trade Organization membership, and they hold a lot of debt. So I was wondering how you might see those as benefiting China in a way that I don't think enough people are either talking about or thinking. I can go. And I always like to start with Belt and Road. I agree with you that the China World Trade Organization accession did not accomplish the goals that the United States set out to accomplish by allowing it. We, the U.S. thought there'd be normalization and instead China continued to go its own way. You can look back and see whether there were signals that it was going to go this way all along. My guess is there probably were, but fortunately or unfortunately, as the case may be, that was, that decision was made well before my time and an ability to influence it one way or the other, or even really meaningfully understand it. But that that is that was a mistake. I believe I believe it's universally agreed throughout the US national security establishment. It was a mistake. The Belt and Road and the holding of the debt is interesting because the Belt and Road big problem four years ago. Everyone was jumping to take cheap Chinese money and build these infrastructure projects. I think that you have a lot of very unhappy 
customers. The Chinese used cheap labor, they used cheap materials, they made bad stuff. And I genuinely believe that if there were litigation over Belt and Road projects at a world tribunal, the countries, the indebted countries, might have a good shot at winning more than half the time due to the fact that they didn't get what they contracted for. They got the cheap version of it. My my last boss always used to say the Belt and Road was so good that the Chinese had to build everything twice. Once when they went the first time around and then again when it all fell apart. And that I think has proven to be true. So I, I don't know. I, I do agree with the general proposition that holding that much debt puts China in a position of power. But I also think that China understands that it's not a winner every single time. And this can get protracted and dragged on in international tribunals. I will put down one marker and then turn it back over to you, Tom and David. But one of the other things that China has done very well is put itself into positions of power and positions of control in international multilateral organizations. Uh, primarily, I believe, to, to attempt to escape a reckoning for things like Belt and Road and other, in the IP world, allegations of IP theft. So there's that component of this analysis as well, which is that China's powerful at the UN, China's powerful in UN organizations throughout the world and other multilateral organizations. And the reckoning that I just predicted on Belt and Road may be muted by David? Yeah, I don't have a lot to add on that. I think it's all all correct. I think there have been some examples that are causing the participants in that project to have concern about their partner, not just based on quality, but based on how they've behaved commercially as well. Um, and I just think there's overall a, a level of skepticism and closer look at the various relationships with China. There was an article in the New York Times yesterday about Germany and the the chancellor's visit, planned visit there, which has been very controversial domestically after the theme was after Germany kind of learned its lesson of being too dependent on cheap Russian oil. They too dependent in their supply chain on China and, and been, leadership has been under some scrutiny and pressure. So I think that's happening throughout the world. And I hate to get to be like China bashing because that's not my intent. But I think looking at a, taking a clear eyed view of what, you know, what your counterpart is all about and what their goals are is really important. I'd like to now turn to the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. And I guess maybe start with, this is a very new and different type of law based upon the shifting burden of proof to companies, that companies now have to prove that any products or goods that come out of Xinjiang province were not constructed, built, or used forced labor. And so that's put a level of compliance obligations on companies they typically haven't had. And I wanted to maybe start with that component. Is this how U.S. laws, you think, will it be the model for U.S. laws around anti-corruption, money laundering, trade sanctions, a variety of ways or issues going forward? Or is this a one-off really because of how serious the U.S. viewed 
the human rights issue of the Uyghurs that really moved the U.S. Congress to put something in, or is it something else in Europe? Tom, that, that's a great question. Very rarely do you see anything pass with one, I think, one dissenting vote or almost unanimous through Congress in this day and age. So I think that both sides of the aisle felt very strongly that the Uyghur forced labor situation needed to be addressed at this kind of level. Based on the political climate of the day, it's unclear to me that anything else right now has that kind of level of support. You take the example of outbound investment controls. It seems like both sides want to pass a law that prevents or at least sets up some review mechanism for U.S. companies to have outbound investment into China. Uh, but given where Congress is nowadays and given that no one can agree on anything, it just it hasn't happened and it keeps going to the back of the line. And if I had to put my money where my mouth was, I would say it is unlikely that at the congressional level, anything like the UFLPA will be passed in the near future. I do think there's an appetite to try to address some of this at the executive order level. I think you're seeing that with executives or, executive orders on CFIUS, new enforcement guidelines. And so I think the executive branch may take some action to continue to move the needle in the way that you described, Tom. But given, even though China seems to be a bipartisan issue right now, it does not always translate into action. But I'd, you know, I'd welcome other views on that because I do think that some of this needs to be addressed in the near term. And David, from your, let me draw on maybe your MBA experience a little bit because you are now interacting with a lot of individuals across the globe in that program that you had not really interacted with before. And what are some of the discussions you guys are having around these issues? And I'm really more intrigued, some of your colleagues who are not from the United States, they just see this as another superpower fight or is, do they see it as something different? I think they see it as a superpower fight. I, and I think there's a, I think there's a little bit of naivete, particularly among the European business community. I, I, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but my sense is that probably the consensus view is we can straddle these two spheres and we're going to be, we're going to, be able to manage both and we're not going to pick sides. And I'm skeptical that's going to work. I think it has been pretty effective so far, but I'm not sure either China or the U.S. is going to, at the end of the day, leave open that option to be Switzerland or not even Switzerland, Switzerland in, in, in the Russia situation anymore. But to, to not, I don't think that's going to be a viable option. I think they're going to have to pick. And I think could be more painful for some of the European businesses, frankly, than the U.S. than the U.S. businesses. Because, and I should say too, I don't think this is just U.S. initiative. I think there's as much risk of China cutting off and restricting the West as there is of the West cutting off and restricting China. And I think this is a this sort of bipolarization is being pulled by in both directions by both parties. Let me broaden this from simply the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act to other areas such as CFIUS that you mentioned, Mike. I think it was last week the attorney general announced criminal charges were being filed against Chinese individuals allegedly from Huawei as a part of who were trying to get DOJ and FBI materials on the Huawei investigation 
Uh, we've had other Chinese companies sanctioned. I think it was yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, I read about a company called Too Simple, which alleged it's an American company and is alleged to transfer technology back to a startup in China. So these types of actions are really moving forward with greater speed, and it's not limited to being upset about human rights or human trafficking or human slavery, as we saw in the Weaker Forced Labor Prevention Act. So I wanted to maybe broaden the discussion as to how you guys are seeing this in this much more wider variety of laws and, frankly, much more robust enforcement, starting with the U.S. side. You want to start with that, Mike? Sure. And I think part of the challenge and part of the issue here is that behaviors and business relationships and things that were perfectly acceptable just a very short time ago are no longer acceptable in the eyes of the U.S. and in the eyes of U.S. law and in the eyes of U.S. export controls. And it is difficult to educate people. It is difficult to educate startups in particular on just how serious these latest rounds of export controls are. And I'm thinking in particular of the recent round of export controls over advanced technology going into China, particularly in the semiconductor and chip area. And it looks to me as if some of these enforcement actions and the publicity surrounding them are to show the startup community and the venture capital community that these rules and regulations are serious and the U.S. government is paying attention. And I wish for the sake of our client base that there was a less intrusive way to do that. But it seems as if the current administration is at the point where it's going to use carrots and sticks to make sure that everyone understands that it is serious this time and things are different. And you look also, you said that you mentioned the DOJ has been making its announcement. They sent Blinken out twice in the last six weeks to talk about the expedited timetable for the invasion of Taiwan. And when you think about that's really serious. You don't do that for bluster. That's a warning. And it's a warning to the business community to expedite its preparations for a time where perhaps access to the China market or access to China goods is no longer tenable. David, could I add for you on that last point that Mike raised about Secretary Blinken, how does that impact or how should your how should customers and clients be thinking about those issues from the Taiwanese perspective? Are we going to lose a major source of chips or other supply chain issues? China, excuse me, China or Taiwan, Taiwan rather, is under attack in some form and we physically can't get the goods out of Taiwan? Yeah, that's obviously the most, I think, the most acute. But then there are all sorts of other issues, too, that Mike and I have done some kind of tabletop planning with some clients on this. And what about the intellectual property that you might have in Taiwan? What about employees in Taiwan? What does that look like? There's a lot of there's a lot of potential fallout from something like an invasion, I think. And we don't know what that's going to look like. We don't know we don't know if it is going to be an invasion, if it's going to look like something else. I think you would be foolish not to take it seriously as something that is a high priority for China. But 
I think the short answer is you've got to, you just have to plan. You have to contingency plan. And if you're not, if you have operations in Taiwan or are, or rely on Taiwanese products as part of your critical supply chain, it would be irresponsible not to be thinking through what might happen and how you're going to react to it. It was interesting, just maybe just a half a step back to Russia. I was reading an article by a professor, Kish Perella, that was really interesting. She looked at the decisions to withdraw from Russia by various Western companies. And her point was the demand side of getting out was basically the same for everyone. And there was pressure, global pressure, as Mike said before, everybody, there's this at least Western consensus very quickly formed that this was a great evil that needed to be dealt with. And part of that, U.S. and Western companies buying from Russia. But different companies reacted differently to it. And so she was like probing this, what she calls the supply side of it. What factors limited companies' ability to respond to that demand? And she talked about things like the business model. Are you a franchise model where you don't have direct control over your brand in, in, in that country? What is your governance? Do you have a proactive board that's looking to contingency plan to think through stuff or are you just reacting? What are your commercial arrangements? What do your contracts look like? Do you have the flexibility under your sort of commercial infrastructure to make adjustments and to make changes? So those are, I thought those are really interesting things that she's exploring limitations on what Western companies can do in response to a situation like the Russia sanctions, which would also apply to China. I think those are things our clients, our, our U.S. businesses really ought to be focusing attention on and planning, whether it's a ta Taiwan invasion or whether it's decoupling that occurs through other forces. You've got to be. Mike, are you seeing or hearing any additional scrutinies from CFIUS around Chinese investment or has though has Chinese investment in America, slowed down or dried up? It has slowed down considerably over the past several years. I think the level of scrutiny in the past several years has been awfully high. And I think that the market has taken notice of that. I think a lot of companies, especially non-U.S. companies looking to get into the United States on the front end, try to minimize or screen out or eliminate Chinese influence before making an investment. And so even, even investments that used to be quasi-Chinese or partially Chinese, you're not even seeing as much of that anymore because of the CFIUS scrutiny that comes. If there's a vehicle that's 10% Chinese owned that is going to delay a deal by 120 days and require all kinds of monitors and certifications and a whole new national security agreement that wouldn't be required, but for that Chinese component. I think you'll find investment groups are, are coming up with different ways to make up that last 10% of the investment. And so I think the word is out that if you have a Chinese investment coming in, particularly in a TID U.S. business, you would better really think about that on the front end, think about what that looks like, and come to the committee with a mitigation plan that's fairly aggressive right out of the One of the other areas that I posit business has changed forever is in, because of the Russian invasion, is cybersecurity. And I wanted to maybe change the focus from Russia to China. Are you guys hearing or seeing your clients being cyber attacked from Chinese entities or Chinese affiliates 
or is the ubiquitousness of these cyber attacks so large that you just have to plan? You can't focus on one country. You have to plan on really anywhere all the time. I haven't seen anything that's been China-specific, Tom. I fall into the anything all the time camp myself. I don't know, Mike, if you have. No, I haven't. And in cyber attacks, I think it's one of those areas where even at the top of the house, no one cares where it came from. They care that it happened and how are you going to mitigate the damage associated with that breach? And also, how are you going to prevent cyber attacks in general so that that breach never actually happens. But it's one of those areas where I I don't think they care who's doing it. They just want to make sure that they take every step that that it can't be done. That said, there are certain industries that that China is particularly interested in, that Russia is particularly interested in. But I've found that compliance and staying, trying to stay ahead of them is something that those companies who are known targets really invest a lot in and do a pretty good job of doing their best to stay out ahead. Gentlemen, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I wanted to thank you again. We're going to link to your profiles and the article in our show notes, and I greatly look forward to continuing this conversation. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this part two of a special two-part episode on the disruptions to the global supply chain. I've linked to Mike and David's article in the show notes. I've also linked to my prior podcast and blog post on this topic in the podcast series, Never the Same. I'm thrilled to announce that multiple podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network were recently awarded W3 awards. All Things Investigations, the Hughes Hubbard podcast, was awarded an, uh, a silver award for general series, law, and legal services for podcast. Because that's what heroes do, uh, one for arts and cultures in podcast. Hidden Crime, that's Gwen Hassan's podcast, one for crime for podcast. Compliance into the Weeds, with my good friend Matt Kelly, uh, Matt and I won an award for best co-hosts for podcasts. And the Hill Country podcast was also honored for arts and culture for podcasts. And then finally, Life with GDPR. That's my podcast with Jonathan Armstrong for professional service for podcasts. And I'm really proud to announce that a gold award was given to Trekking Through Compliance once again in arts and culture for podcasts. So the con- Compliance Podcast Network continues to garner awards. I hope that you will check out one or more of these podcasts. This is Tom Fox. I hope you'll join me next week on another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.